The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Caleb Benjamin, Internet Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for October 7, 2023. Last week, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board released a report on FISA Section 702. The report's publication comes as significant debates around Section 702's looming December 2023 expiration date. While the board unanimously argued in favor of renewing the national security tool, members disagreed on how best to reform it. Several pieces in Lawfare this week examined the report in depth, and expanded on the arguments over Section 702 Reform and Renewal. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from December 23, 2017, in which Benjamin Wittes and Susan Hennessy sat down with Molly Reynolds to discuss Congress's failure to reauthorize FISA Section 702. They discussed the politics of Section 702, the influence 2017's legislative agenda had on the renewal debate, and what could happen next to the crucial intelligence tool. Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 22nd, 2017. It's nearly the end of the year, and we're still here because we have work to do, kind of like the Congress of the United States, which got to the end of 2017 without managing to reauthorize FISA 702. So they passed a 30-day extension, which in practice is probably more like an eight-day extension, given that they're not going to be here for much of the time. It's the politics of 702. It's wild and wooly. And I have my two next-door neighbors here to talk about it. Susan Hennessy, who forgets more in a week about 702 than most of us ever know. And Molly Reynolds, who works literally next door to me and is... Brookings is resident expert on legislative politics. We're going to talk through all the kooky stuff that's been going on that's about to cause one of the country's most important intelligence programs to turn into a pumpkin. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 271. What the heck is up with 702? Hey, podcast listeners, reminder before we get started that next week is a We Answer Your Questions episode. Reminder how this works. You call in to the following number, 240-812-8498, and leave your question and say which lawfare contributor you want to address it. And we will hunt that person down and we will make him or her answer your question on audio, and we will string them all together and make a really cool end-of-the-year podcast out of it. So this is your chance. 
240-812-8498. Leave us a message. All right, Susan, get us started. Uh, Congress has known about this deadline for a very long time, right? Uh, and uh, the end of the year is come and the end of the legislative year has gone and uh, no 702 reauthorization, but a little extension. So bring us up to speed on the situation. Yeah, so it, Congress has, had, has known for literally years um, about whenever this authority was going to sunset. That, you know, that said, it was always sort of this was the legislative session that, in which it was going to be reauthorized. Um, so what we've seen over the course of the past 12 months is essentially sort of a series of escalating games of chicken by which there are th hypothetical opportunities to reauthorize Section 702 in some form. Um, there are sort of reform, uh, you know, civil liberties and privacy advocates that are looking for reform. Um, there are the more sort of national security hawks that want to see it uh, either reauthorized in its clean, uh, clean reauthorization, so reauthorized as it currently exists, even some proposals to actually make, uh, make it permanent, so reauthorize it as it currently exists, and also get rid of that sunset provision. Um, so sort of we've been through a few cycles now in which uh, we've had, you know, dueling bills uh, introduced. Um, none of those have actually come up for votes yet. Um, and all along, we've sort of been ticking towards this December 31st deadline. Actually, it's December 30th at midnight is technically when the authority lapses. Now, this is all against the backdrop of there are annual certifications that are set to lapse in April. So there's a little bit, we're about to fall off essentially a mini cliff. Um, the big cliff comes in April whenever the actual certifications that allow ongoing targeting under Section 702 uh, expire. So, uh, but it is still frankly shocking um, that we've gotten to this point. Congress has uh, decided to do a very brief reauthorization. So basically, they're just extending uh, the sunset date until January 19th. That's going to buy them a little bit of time. It still isn't clear what the compromise legislation might look like, which team is sort of stronger here. Um, and sort of every single day, it's getting more likely that we're going to get to the point where the, uh, the actual authority lapses entirely. Okay. So a few things. One is I, I have to say this. You say it is completely shocking. And I want you to be on record who has been saying that exactly this was going to happen for more than six months. So a lot of people, but specifically one Benjamin Wittes, yeah. who okay. so, expressly predicted, I believe this exact thing was going to happen. We had a conversation in June or July about it. Yeah, I've been saying to almost anyone who would listen, FISA 702 is going to expire. And, um, and, and look, to your credit, I have been saying, look, the Republicans control the Senate, the House, the White House. They've been totally hawkish on national security. I mean, it's not possible they would allow 702 to lapse. I mean, this has been, as someone who pays a lot of attention to Congress, this has been a year where we've, I've heard people say this, that same thing about lots of other policy issues. So 
We've been saying that about the Children's Health Insurance Program, which expired at the end of September. And, you know, people spent nine months saying CHIP's not going to expire because CHIP never expires. So this is a, uh, a refrain, I think, that extends beyond just this particular policy 2017, issue. 2017, the year all the things that don't expire expired. Like even outside sort of the legislative process, we're seeing other things that might actually make reauthorizing 702 a heavier lift. So uh, just today it was announced that uh, FBI General Counsel Jim Baker, someone who has really been uh, a key uh, sort of within the government in sort of in pushing reauthorization, ensuring the Hill is informed, having those kinds of public engagements. Um, there were a lot of people who did that during the Obama administration. So Bob Litt, who was the general counsel of uh, of ODNI, uh, took a very uh, uh, forward-leaning approach on sort of the 215 reauthorization. Um, sort of Comey, uh, former FBI Director Comey, was uh, the person who I think most people assumed would be sort of, uh, uh, you know, doing the 702 circuit this year. Obviously, things didn't play out that way. So it's required, it's already been a really complex policy space. Baker really has stepped up to the plate in a really important way for the intelligence community, the FBI, and the government. Now to hear that he is going to be reassigned within the FBI uh, admits a lot of uh, pressure from Hill Republicans against sort of the FBI's senior leadership. That, I think, throws things even more into turmoil and question. So, um, yeah, memo to the administration, if you want to get your legislative priorities uh, through Congress, best practices do not include firing and removing all the people who are carrying the ball on it. Just a thought. Uh, so, Susan, before we go on into the into the sort of depths of the legislative politics, for those uh, listeners who are new to this subject, give us a little 702 primer. What is it and uh, why should we care? Right. So uh, very shortly, because we've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast, and I would um, really um, recommend to uh, Lawfare podcast listeners listening to a previous podcast we've done uh, with Jim Baker and Carl Gaddis at the FBI. That's kind of a a deep dive on the program. Um, But essentially, this is the program by which uh, the U.S. intelligence community targets foreigners located abroad, uh, uh, their communications by serving process on U.S. service providers. So there are lots of um, uh, complex questions related to incidental collection. Most of the controversy uh, uh, surrounds the, the uh, whenever you interact with U.S. persons' communications. Um, but essentially, this is, uh, this is the program that uh, likely produces the most amount of information that goes into things like the, presidential, uh, the president's daily brief. Right, it's it's a critical sort of counterterrorism authority. It's something that uh, that that really is it touches on every single part of the intelligence community's mission. So, anything from foreign policy sanctions compliance, sort of it's uh, it's really it, it pops up everywhere in the national security world. Um, so, one more thing, uh, you alluded to this earlier: the authority to seek new certifications is what expires. When, but that does not mean the intelligence community suddenly goes dark. So just sketch out for us what the gradations, what are the d- dates on which uh, bad things start happening if 702 
is not reauthorized. Right. So there's one thing to keep in mind, and that's that there's not like a 702 light switch in the basement of Fort Meade that it's you more turn of a right, <laughs> slowly. Um, you know, it, it, the intelligence community, and specifically the attorneys within the intelligence community, are quite insistent that at the moment statutory authority lapses, you no longer have the authority to collect something. You have to be a hundred percent in compliance. So whenever we think about any of these deadlines, you have to build in a couple of weeks in advance. The intelligence community is always pretty cagey about sort of the precise number of days they need. But we're talking about something on the order of, you know, three or four weeks um, in advance of the deadlines. So what's going to happen previously on December 31st, but now on January 19th, is the underlying statutory authority. So the thing that allows the government to go to the FISC and obtain uh, uh, authorization, that is going to lapse. So the government will no longer be able to do that. However, because authorizations are issued on an annual basis, there are still existing non-expired authorizations. So uh, the current, uh, the last set of authorizations were obtained on April 26th of last year. So that means that theoretically, um, the underlying statute could lapse, 702 could go away, and you could still have a good authorization, right? So you could still have uh, sort of the authority to undertake ongoing collection, even if you weren't allowed to undertake new collection. Now, this is not a settled uh, sort of question of law. Um, There is some precedent, and most precedent goes in the government's favor that, yes, it is sort of kosher to to continue to rely on the existing annual certification. Um, We can see evidence of how uncomfortable DOJ is with that position because they insisted on getting this two-week authorization, this 30-day reauthorization, right? The government is really not comfortable being put in the position, mostly because it's going to open them up to litigation risks. So as soon as there's an open question about whether or not providers have to comply, um, you know, we can expect that some providers will say, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're going to actually challenge this in court. Uh, Even if the government thinks it'll probably win ultimately on the merits, it really doesn't want to be investing time and resources and frankly, just the risk um, by allowing those sort of those sorts of questions to open. Um, But technically, uh, the government has has indicated that let's say that the program did lapse entirely or it does lapse entirely on January 19th, they do intend to continue to collection up until that April 26th date. And can they uh, go into the FISC on January 18th and say, uh, please renew for the next year so that they actually buy themselves a year uh, rather than a few months? Um, so this is a question and a solution some people have floated. The government has been quite clear that they do not intend to pursue that, that strategy. This is not about sort of getting through by a loophole. If Congress does not want this program to be authorized, if it does not want the intelligence community to, to undertake this form of collection, something that on a broad bipartisan basis, uh, you know, most people agree this is a, a critical and important authority even those that sort of support reform at the margins. Um, you know, but I do think it's it's the pretty clear position of the executive branch. Look, you know, we're not going to play cute with Congress. Um, if they aren't prepared to reauthorize this authority, then we're all going to have to live with the consequences of that. Now, don't do that. Let's reauthorize the program. Um, but even if you technically could do that, even if you could get a fist judge to sign off on it, you know, an even sort of bigger question, um, the government's been clear that they just they aren't playing that game. All right, Molly. So you're responsible for everything Congress does. Absolutely. That's my title here at Brookings, person Uh, who's responsible for Congress. um, 
how does this happen uh, as as the law has we've all known the law was you know had an expiration date um, uh, we've all known what that was for years uh, the intelligence community and members of both parties are broadly in agreement that if coverage of this statute lapses for even a very short time, that presents an exigent national security emergency. Um, how does it happen that Congress is so dysfunctional that it is even a question as to whether this lapses in practice? Yes, I think there are a couple different levels at which we want to answer that question. So there's a point to be made about kind of the overall environment of the current Congress, of Congress in 2017, and what's been happening throughout the year. So one thing that um, Republicans in Congress decided to do um, with their unified control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency was take on a couple of big major legislative priorities and do so on a party line basis. So first it was health care, then it was the tax bill. And they did those in a way that meant they didn't have to work with Democrats. So that sort of set a kind of baseline uh, attitude for the year and also just sort of consumed nearly all of the oxygen on Capitol Hill. So that's kind of the overall um, atmosphere in which this was happening. Um, and they were really focused, particularly after the failure of the health care bill, on getting that tax bill done, which again meant that that's what everyone was paying attention to. And it was really overshadowing the need to get a number of other things, including 702 reauthorization, um, but things like the children's health insurance program, the expiration of the flood insurance program, a big veterans uh, health bill, all that kind of stuff. Um, keeping the government open. Keeping the government open. DACA. DACA, um, all kinds of things. Um, I actually think DACA is a sort of interesting um, comparison case here because it's something that has kind of a deadline that's out there, but there's a lot of disagreement among the policy community about, you know, what are the consequences of that actual March deadline versus what's already happening given um, that they're not taking new applications. But anyway, so there's all this um, all this stuff that they were uh, were had deadlines coming up on, um, and the the sort of political drive to finish the tax legislation just really overshadowed all of them. And then it got to a point where, at the beginning of December, we had all of these pieces, and there's an analogy that people sometimes use when they talk about Congress about a Christmas tree bill, where people try to hang lots of ornaments on them, and if you hang too many ornaments on them, um, the whole bill falls down. Um, I think in this case, it was more just there were so many possible ornaments, no one really knew which ones we were going to pair together um, to, to get this done. So that's kind of what's been happening over the past several weeks. And just to be clear, I mean, there, there were a number of things that, like 702, had built-in end-of-the-year yes. deadlines. And I, we actually generally think that deadlines work in con or can work in Congress's favor. So um, there's, I mean, there's a reason why, for example, you brought up earlier the idea that um, 702 has a periodic fixed-term authorization. So the last time they renewed it, they renewed it for some amount of time. They didn't make it permanent. And we
we think that that can be a good thing for Congress generally. It gives them a reason to revisit policy questions. But when you can't actually use that deadline to force yourselves to take the necessary action and the necessary review, then that's not helpful. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, 
doxing and phishing scams, Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And whenever we sort of, um, you know, we obviously the tax bill became the priority. There was no deadline sort of in the tax code for right. reforming that. You know, was there, um, whenever we think about how we can read legislative priorities and particularly national security mm-hmm. legislative priorities um, into the choices here, you know, was it, you know, assume that you're someone who really does want to see tax legislation, um, this tax legislation passed. Um, was it a reasonable choice or the only choice to put the tax bill now? Would it have been just as likely to be passed whenever they got back in January, right? So sort of putting yourself in the mindset of actually sharing the, you know, the the policy uh, goal, you know, whether or not any of the three of us do, um, you know, I, I, how, how big of a statement is it that, um, you know, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan said, let's do taxes first, let's do 702 and everything else later, or, or rather not do them before their deadlines? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that um, the the choice to do the tax bill this year and to really focus on that being the priority was a political choice. So there's no, there's nothing procedural that meant that they couldn't wait until 2018 to do the tax bill. Um, and I think what many folks maybe thought was going to happen is they were going to get the tax bill done, and then they weren't necessarily going to have all of the problems that they did making the other pieces fit together in the past week or so. And we can kind of talk about why it is that um, 702 ended up being a somewhat problematic piece of that overall puzzle. But I think that if you are someone who cares a lot about taxes, it was important politically to get that done before the end of the year. But there's nothing about the policy that would have kind of changed if you waited until January to do it instead. Okay, so Molly, walk us through what in fact Congress did, because they actually folded it into the whole government shutdown. So now we have a government shutdown issue merged with a 702 shutdown issue. Uh, Those didn't used to be connected. Now they are. What exactly happened procedurally? Sure. So, um, well, the story in some ways begins in September, um, when the government's fiscal year ends. Um, and so every year before the 1st of October, Congress has to take some sort of action uh, to keep the government running in the new fiscal year. 
This year, they decided in uh, uh, September to do a short-term continuing resolution, which basically is just a, sort of the government's version of autopilot. It says everything that was already happening can keep going with the same amount of money that was directed at it before. Sometimes they'll write in a little bit of language to make a couple tweaks around the edges, but it's basically just we're going to keep going where we were before. So in September, they passed a continuing resolution that ran through um, the 8th of December. Um, come early December, everyone realized that they weren't going to have their act together to do anything longer term. Um, and so they did another short two-week continuing resolution, which was scheduled to run out um, tonight, uh, the 22nd at midnight. So they needed to do something to keep the lights on past, um, past midnight tonight. And one thing that we've seen a lot of in Congress in recent years is using these must-pass spending bills, these bills that are meant to keep the government open to prevent a government shutdown, as a way to try to move other legislative priorities. And so in this case, one of those other legislative priorities was the 702 reauthorization. And that's how it ended up getting folded in with this, um, this particular uh, spending bill. The spending bill that they passed um, this week that has the short-term 702 reauthorization itself runs out on January 19th. Importantly, it's not just that they've punted keeping the government open and the 702 reauthorization to mid-January. They've also punted a number of other issues to the beginning of next year. Again, things like CHIP, things like uh, the flood insurance program. They did not uh, resolve, for example, the, uh, the DACA uh, issue. That remains out there. Uh, and so it's not just that uh, come January, uh, they're going to have to figure out how to keep the government open and um, how to reauthorize 702. It's that they have a number of other legislative deadlines that they also didn't resolve at the end of this year. So sort of predicting the future. So um, the House has now announced they're not going to come back in session until the 8th. Um, what you've described is essentially a bandwidth issue at the end of this year. There just wasn't enough time and floor time in order to get all of these bills passed, um, particularly with people like Rand Paul and Ron Wyden um, uh, threatening to filibuster. Uh, it now seems like they've moved all of the same pieces to the same day in the future. They then have eight days. So they come back January 8th. They have the same problems that they couldn't surmount this week. What happens? The, well, the oil that was supposed to burn for <laughs> one day will burn for eight days and they'll be fine. I mean, that's one option, Ben. Um, <laughs> another one that's probably more likely is that uh, – I would frankly be somewhat surprised if by January 19th we've actually resolved all of these issues, in part because one of the sort of big overarching unanswered questions is not just kind of how to allocate federal resources across programs, but frankly, how much overall money uh, the federal government is going to spend next year. So thanks to um, something called the Budget Control Act that was passed in 2011, there are caps on discretionary federal spending. Um, basically, every, not everyone, but close to everyone um, is unhappy with those caps, thinks they should be higher. And so the first step in kind of resolving the government funding piece of this is for Republicans and Democrats to come to an agreement on what those overall limits should be. 
My guess is that between now and January 19th, that's really going to be the focus on the spending side. So the first thing that will happen is that they will try to get that agreement. And it may well be the case that they need another short-term spending bill. Um, I'm saying all this because what I what I sort of envision early in the year is another series of kind of must-pass important votes that other things, including potentially 702, may get attached to. One thing that we did hear this week that will be interesting to watch is um, one of the um, points that was discussed by members about approaching 702 is a a sort of demand from some, um, I think particularly House members, for a separate debate on 702 on the floor where they would be able to offer amendments to, to the bill. And that kind of argument about members getting a chance to um, amend bills as part of a much broader kind of debate between rank and file, uh, particularly House Republicans and the House Republican leadership. Um, House Republican rank and file members think that they don't have enough um, input into how legislation works. And so it wasn't um, it wasn't particularly surprising to me to see that come out as one of the cleavages here um, on an issue that, uh, as I understand it, actually has um, some really interesting um, cleavages that don't line up neatly along partisan lines. OK, so let's let's this is actually a very interesting uh backdoor uh, way into the question of uh, what is actually in dispute here. Because like with with spending, I understand Democrats and Republicans disagree, right? With CHIP, there's presumably some actual policy disagreement that underlies it. But, uh, you know, 702, everybody purports to want to reauthorize it with, with very few exceptions. And while there are some civil libertarians of both the left and the right who want uh, 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 reforms of certain aspects of it, um, particularly with respect to backdoor searches. Um, My impression is that if you had a vote on reauthorizing 702, it passes pretty substantially in both houses of Congress. And so I'm interested, Susan, in your sense of what are we really fighting about with respect to 702 and who at this point are the sides? So I think this is um, partly a question that that I still have in my mind, and that's that um, whenever sort of this you know, we're, we're in a pause period right now, when the debate reopens, what does it reset to? Right. Are we back to where we were before midnight yesterday, are we sort of is are we have we totally reopened the debate? So um, so what we've seen is a number of bills sort of emerge. Um, so first, there was legislation that came out of the SSCI, um, multiple forms of legislation, some offered by uh, by Senator Wyden. I think it's fair to describe those as sort of non-starters in the sense that they um, had reforms that are fundamentally operationally unacceptable to the IC and are very, very unlikely to pass. Um, as well as uh, a bill out of the SSCI that had some sort of marginal reforms, but really was more or less clean reauthorization, as well as a bill from Senator Cotton to uh, to basically make it a permanent law. Um, uh, then we had the House Judiciary Committee. Um, so there's also turf wars within the committees um, because the intelligence committees feel like they have ownership of 702 because it's an intelligence collection authority. The Judiciary Committees um, that oversee the FBI because the particular controversy 
controversy is related to the FBI's use of this information. They feel like they have a very big stake in this as well. So you definitely see some conflicts between the committees. So we saw a House Judiciary bill that came out that sort of had um, very substantive reforms about a limited area of sort of backdoor searches, um, you know, whether or not uh, post, you know, what's known as post-collection queries. So the um, uh, NSA collects information under the broad 702 authority. It's then shared with federal agencies, including the FBI. And the controversy is over what is the legal standard or process that has to occur before the FBI can uh, can query those the databases that it has of 702 information for U.S. persons' information. Basically, you know, the, it runs the, ra- the range from um, they just get to do it anytime they want to uh, to they actually need to seek a warrant from a judge. Um, so the HJC put this bill out. Um, a lot of discussion about that. Uh, ultimately, what we saw as we were moving up closer and closer to the deadline and through November was sort of rumors that, hey, this HIPSI bill was going to strike the, the big compromise. Um, so they were going to take the SSCI legislation, they were going to take the HJC legislation, and sort of whatever the HIPSI put out, that was going to be the thing that they were going to try and get through using some vehicle like the spending bill at the end of the year. So um, everyone was sort of waiting to see where did the HIPSI bill fall. Um, when the HIPSI bill was released, it looked a lot more like those SSCI clean reauthorization bills than it did like the HJC bill. So that was a pretty big signal sort of from, from at least Intel committee leadership um, on a bicameral basis that, hey, we're not doing the major reform game. Um, sort of the, the path that we're going to try and pursue here is basically reauthorize the program as it exists, add a little bit of sort of transparency accountability reforms on the margin and try and get it through. So what we saw earlier this week was an attempt to take that HIPSI bill, put it on, uh, you know, other must-pass legislation. That failed. So my question, and Molly, I don't know if you have an answer to this yet, is, okay, (laughs) now as we take another bite at the apple, what apple are we taking a bite at? Are we going back to the HIPSI legislation because, hey, all that compromise, you know, occurred? Or because the deadline is no longer there, the deadline is different, are we going to reopen all those questions? I mean, I, I know that's sort of a political as much as procedural, but what's your sense of what off ordinarily or often happens? Yeah, so one thing that I think is really important to think about in this context um, is, so getting at something that Ben said before about, you know, there's broad consensus on uh, reauthorizing 702, but there are some folks um, on both the left and the right who feel really strongly about this, is that it gets down to a sort of preferences versus intensity of preferences uh, debate. And so to the extent that there are some members, um, and whether they come from the sort of ideological left or the ideological right, who feel very strongly about their position on this issue, um, particularly when Congress is facing a deadline and is trying to do a very choreographed dance around the time that they have, if you have very intense preferences and you're willing to try and derail that careful dance, that gives you a lot of leverage. Excuse me. And so I think that that may be one of the dynamics that we are seeing um, at play here. I think a second thing to keep in mind is the degree to which the um, factions that um, perhaps objected to the original plan this week um, overlap with um, other factions within Congress who are um, 
who need to be uh, mollified on other issues. Um, and so here I'm thinking um, about, you know, the potential of, say, some of the um, uh, conservative House Republicans who perhaps both object, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to some of the provisions in the seven, in possible 702 reauthorizations, but also object to other things um, related to, say, keeping the government open. And so you, uh, Republican leaders, end up having to try to uh, sort of trade across these issues once they've already tried to link them. I'll give you, I'll give you 702 for CHIP. Yeah, or just things like that generally. And that's another consequence of kind of all of these issues colliding together. Right. You end up you end up with horse trading of totally unrelated equities, right? Right, right. And um of and again of things that people have wildly different intensities of preferences about. Okay. So let's um th- th- that that's actually a good place to sort of go to you know, kind of wrap up in a in a what happens in January kind of way. Okay, so uh, we have eight days in January. Uh, what do we expect to see happen in that time with respect to seven hundred two? Do you do you think it's reasonable to get a reauthorization for some period of time, some some real period of time? Do you kick it down the road again with another kind of CR or very short-term extension? Or do you actually have uh, a floor debate on a standalone bill in either of both houses in which people get to do what, of course, should have happened over the last year and a half, which is debating 702? Right. So on that last question, um, if it is the case that the primary demand for a real debate on 702 reauthorization is in the House, um, the House has more ability to kind of control and schedule its floor time than the Senate does. And so if Paul Ryan thought that a way to solve this or any number of his other problems was devoting some amount of floor time to debating a 702 reauthorization in early January. I think he could make that happen. I don't know if that's what's going to happen, um, but I think that that um, that that is one uh, one option. Um, one other point that I want to make that kind of gets at why this has um, been really tricky is that because this is an issue that doesn't break down neatly along partisan lines, it's not one that Congress is terribly well equipped to deal with in the kind of modern uh, the contemporary Congress where. Either everything is partisan or everything is incredibly bipartisan and everyone agrees. And so when you can't use kind of the usual um, heuristics and shortcuts for deal making across the parties, I think that's part of why both we got to the point where we are and also why I don't have a great answer about exactly what happens next. What is your prediction, Susan? I don't know. I'm surprised to be in this position sort of in in the first place. Um, my, I, I don't have a procedural prediction. My prediction is still that um, 702 is in fact reauthorized, that that reauthorization looks more like uh, sort of the SSCI HIPC model than any of the more uh, aggressive reform efforts that we've seen. Um, I, I think that 
the sort of I the privacy and civil liberties groups really have um, attempted to use this second April uh, deadline as a reason to sort of say no 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 don't let them you know uh, don't let them force you into voting now don't let them uh, you know you don't you don't have to capitulate because you know you have this April uh, April deadline um, I I think it's totally possible that we will see another short term uh, uh, deadline that moves us closer to what is the real cliff and that actually might incentivize people to act a little bit differently. That said, um, I think it's worth noting that 2018 is an election year, and this is a controversial issue, and it's a controversial issue in ways that are not predictably partisan. People have sort of strongly felt and, and sometimes unpredictable views on these things. And so I do think that the closer you push to November, the more likely it becomes that this sort of the the marginal controversies or the surmountable controversies now really become entrenched issues. Um, we've seen uh, sort of notwithstanding really um, White House and executive branch and intelligence community efforts to get this reauthorization done. We've seen President Trump be incredibly counterproductive on it, raising lots of questions about sort of intelligence community abuses, um, really making it difficult for Are the Are you FBI. belittling the unmasking controversy, <laughs> Susan? So one of the things that actually got the Hipsy bill um, sort of free from the committee ultimately was these very, very silly provisions that Devin Nunes had insisted on including um, about sort of an unmasking controversy, a controversy that most people in the intelligence community um, recognize as wholly fictitious and, and really designed to mollify President Trump. What the uh, executive branch did because they were so concerned about sort of the um, unintended or inadvertent consequences of this not particularly careful legislative language because they said, okay, okay, we will do unmasking reform at an executive order level. So we'll give you everything you want, all the silly things you want to address your silly fake controversy in order to get it pulled out of the legislation. So that was one thing that people had sort of grasped onto as saying, hey, you know, that's, uh, you know, the Hipsy bill actually does have a chance here. Um, but I just think, you know, don't underestimate uh, the particularly dysfunction in the House um, and, and sort of the dysfunction that comes out of the president that tends to be centered on the intelligence community, intelligence community practices over the next year, as we know, Special Counsel Mueller's investigation will continue. Investigations in the Senate, potentially in the House, are going to continue. It will uh, potentially become wrapped up as an election year issue. And so, to my mind, every day that we get closer to November, it's going to make this a heavier lift, which is why you know we're really moving into playing a, a, a pretty dangerous and potentially incredibly consequential game. Yeah, and this, this dynamic that you um, uh, highlighted, Susan, about uh, the degree to which President Trump has perhaps made legislative agreement on this issue more difficult is not, again, unique to, I want to kind of put this in a little bit of context, it's not unique to 702. One of the things that's been kind of particularly interesting to watch as someone who pays a lot of attention to Congress is that usually we think that same party presidents um, of the congressional majority have some power to help those congressional majorities um, bridge internal differences and there are many among the Congressional Republican Party and that is something we just have not seen happen in a very effective way this year. So this concern that you have about kind of an election year and the degree to which um, President Trump presents challenges for Republicans in building a coalition around this is again not unique to this particular issue. 
Well, my prediction, for whatever it's worth, is that FISA 702 will actually expire in January, if only for a short period of time, because it will take an expiration in order to create the atmosphere of crisis that will cause Congress to act rather than to kick the can. Um, and I don't think I don't think you'll have a lapse of coverage, but I do think you will have a we will have to go through the exercise of letting it expire and letting people freak out and make dire warnings in order for Congress to be able to muster the political will and energy to focus in the same direction. On that cheerful note, Molly Reynolds, Susan Hennessy, thank you so much for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, which today supplied all, for the first time, of our guests on the Lawfare Podcast. So thanks this week to the Brookings Institution for being the Brookings Institution. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast in all those ways that you do. Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, 4chan, all those other social media services that you use. Our music is, of course, played by the one, the only, the in Washington this week, Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.